Well, it's really great to be together with you all today. Um, my name is Gabe Coyle. I'm the campus pastor here at Christ Communities Downtown Campus, and it is a joy to be together today, our last Sunday for a good while until only God knows that we will be at two services, right? So we're all kind of gearing up for what that means for three services. But hey, in light of all of that, there's a question, I think, that no matter where you are in life, no matter who you are, everybody's asked this question at some point in your life. It's a question, I think, as soon as you hear it raised, it kind of ticks our hearts a little bit quicker. Here it is. What do you do when God tells you no? Whether you're a Christian or not, I can guarantee you've prayed. And maybe it wasn't to the Christian God. Maybe it was to the universe or to anyone who would listen, right? And, and chances are really good if you've prayed before, then there's been a moment in your life where you didn't get what you asked for in that prayer. And I know that probably caused some of you to doubt. For some of you, maybe it was a spiral of doubt that for a season of your life, it even caused you to walk away from God for a bit. And maybe you're here at Christ Community this morning because you're seeking to give God another chance, to get to know Him and for Him to get to know you, to give the church another chance. And maybe you've been on this journey for a while. And I know for some of you, this is your story. Stories of deep heartache and loss. Some of you, stories of marriages that have failed. Some of you who've lived life as a single person and some who feel called and celebrate their, singles, but, uh, their singleness, but others who are asking the question, God, I long for a spouse and he still hasn't brought that right one yet. Others, it may be pain and sickness you've endured for an extended period of time that leads to death and for some, the awful atrocity, even the death of children. And I know in those moments you prayed. You prayed your heart out, asking God to intervene, to act, to do something in the midst and salvage the chaos that surrounds you. But the answer that came back when it appeared like nothing changed was this de facto no. In that moment where you heard or felt or received the no to your request, Chances are really good you felt alone. You felt like God didn't care, like he didn't know what it was like to be where you were and to feel what you were feeling. And I want you to know this morning, God wants you to know this morning that you're not alone. And what we're going to find in scripture is someone who resonates with that reality better than we could have ever imagined. So in light of that, and I know you were just standing, would you please stand for the reading of God's word here in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. In a moment when we return to our written scriptures, if you're using one of our community Bibles, it's found on page number 832. But hear the word of the Lord this morning. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, 
saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, the disciples, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Who would have thought that the Son of God, who has purified desires, pure motives, longs for what is right and holy, knows what it feels like to pour out his heart before God the Father and hear no. So what do you do when God tells you no? What do we learn from Jesus in this moment? Well, here in our passage, Jesus makes one thing really, really clear. Um, And in the midst of our questions, this is not an easy answer but it's a good one. This answer is going to challenge our hearts down to the core, but it's the only way, please hear me, it's the only way you're going to ever get what your heart really longs for. And what we see from Jesus this morning, if there's one thing you take away from this morning, it's this. What do you do when God tells you no? Always say yes to God, even when God says no to you. Always say yes to God, even when God says no to you, no matter what it is. But to do that, you know, this takes an an extreme amount of trust, doesn't it? It takes a high level of trust to say yes to God when God says no to something we feel like we desperately need. When God says no to maybe our hopes, our dreams, passions, relationships, to healing, to what we hoped would bring final fulfillment? How do we do that? How do we pray like that? How do we learn to trust like that? Well, chances are really good we're not going to be able to answer every one of those questions fully this morning. But what we see in Jesus here is a really great starting place. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew 26, and let's take a look at this together. Well, here, beginning in verse 37, we find Jesus in in a rare state. He's disturbed, like really disturbed. He looks miserable, and he's wrestling with something down to the core of who he is that he, he brings together Peter, James, and John, and he tells them, I am very sorrowful, even to death. And some of the other gospel accounts, they talk about how Jesus was sweating blood. He was so profusely stressed out about what was laying ahead of him. You see, Jesus had just finished his last supper here on earth before he would go to the cross. He knew the road of the cross involved excruciating pain. And I want you to think about some of the components of this pain. It's it's not a very simple pain. The reality is one of his closest friends is going to betray him. 
and stab him in the back. The 11 other of his closest friends promised they would never leave his side and they're all going to abandon him. And as Jesus walks into the Garden of Gethsemane, he steps into the shadow of the cross. And to be sure, this is why he came. We see this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 29. He came to save his people from their sins and to do so through the cross by dying for their sins. And time and again, Jesus foretold his own death. This wasn't like a surprise to Jesus, but now this was the eve of his crucifixion. I was thinking about that this week, and it's kind of like if you hear you know, the awful news that you have to have triple bypass surgery. And you put it on your calendar, maybe for a month down the road or a couple months down the road, and you start to get things organized for that surgery. And of course, it causes some stress. Of course, it engages your thoughts. But the night before you're going to have the surgery, the reality, the weight of what's at risk That's when you call your pastor. That's when you reach out to your friends. That's when you start writing or maybe finish the letters you were writing to loved ones, to family, to friends. And for Jesus, the time has come. He knew it was coming, but it's finally here. And it's not even that just his friends were going to abandon him. It's not just that the pain he's about to go through physically is astronomically excruciating. But it's knowing that when he, the perfect, perfect son of God, who's never sinned, was going to take upon himself the sin of the world, your sin and my sin, as a perfect substitute. As the apostle Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God and the wrath of God was to be poured on him as it rightly deserves to be poured on us. And God the Son was going to experience something he'd never experienced in eternity past. God the Father and God the Son knew intimate friendship and kinship throughout eternity past, but now that intimacy was to be torn. For God the Father cannot look upon sin in all of his perfection and his holiness. And if but for a moment, God the Father and God the Son And the mystery of God himself was fractured. And as our willing substitute, Jesus who knew no sin would willingly become sin for us, take upon the righteous wrath of God that a just God must extend upon destructive sin that we might be pardoned. And that, the totality of all of that shook Jesus to his core. Fully God, fully man. He's not so far God and so less human that that would not rock him. And that kind of weight, that would crush any mere mortal. And so Jesus, he goes a little bit further into the garden by himself and he gets down flat on his face. I don't know how many times I've seen these pictures of Jesus in the garden. He looks all poised and in control on his knees. No, Matthew says, no, 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 he's prostrate. He's on his face. And he just prays a simple prayer. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now this cup is a metaphor for all the suffering that is to come, the wrath of God that is to be poured on him. 
And he asks if there's any other way, if, if we can do this any other way, if we can bring about the redemption of the world, the, rest of the restoration of the world by just sidestepping the cross, can't, is, is there any other way we can do, the, do what you've called us to do, this great plan that's been set in, in, in stone before the foundation of the world? Is there anything we can do if we can just get around the cross? But it's always been centered on the cross. There's no way around it. And here's the first thing we learn from Jesus on how to pray like him. We learn to pray yes to God only when we realize we're invited to pray honestly to him. Not perfectly, not precise in all of our language, but honestly. Because listen, you don't have to come to God in prayer with all your words nice and neat. Jesus begins where he is. He doesn't start with your will be done. Notice the order. He starts with, please take this from me. Is there any other way? Jesus, the Son of God, very God of very God. And he prays honestly, starting where his heart is at, starting with his pain, his human weakness, his burdens. And we're invited to do the same. God knows our hearts. So begin where you are. And even... Even when you think you know what you should say, right? We've got all of our religious platitudes that we think we need to throw out there. Start where your heart is. God already knows what's going on in your heart, so just invite him in. So let me ask you this morning, have you given him your burdens? Have you been honest with him about your burdens, the things that are weighing you down? When was the last time you got down on your face before God and you were just honest with him? about what's going on in your life, about what you're wrestling with. Well, after Jesus, he spends some time in prayer. He, he comes back to the apostles and he finds them sleeping, which if you've ever tried praying late at night, right, we've all been there. And uh, not too long ago, I was in a meeting with about eight other folks. And uh, I'm seriously the furthest thing from being a night owl. After 8 p.m., my energy level takes a nosedive, okay? And we decided we're going to start with prayer like every, you know, good meeting. You're supposed to start with prayer. And, uh, well, the peace of the Lord, it came over me with such strength <laughs> that uh, <laughs> I fell asleep. And have you ever had that feeling when you're sleeping? It's this weird, you can't almost explain it. You have this weird feeling that people are looking at you when you're sleeping. And then when you open your eyes, you know something is terribly wrong. Well, I, I opened my eyes, and everyone was quiet and just staring at me. <laughs> and I wasn't, like, quick enough in the moment, because I was asleep, to say something like, amen. Like, you know, like, I've been praying longer, I'm the pastor, whatever, garbage you want to think. But no, instead, all I could think of was, how long was I out? <laughs> and they just said something like, oh, it was just, like, 10 seconds. One of us was trying to figure out who they're going to wake you up for, whatever. <laughs> I was like, that feels so awful, you know, and just transparently as the pastor, I just felt like such a failure. I was like, the flock, you know. Well, listen, okay, so I can, I can resonate with the apostles here. <laughs> they, they obviously didn't get the weight of the moment. And Jesus, he comes back to them and he says, hey, hey, guys, wake up. You need to be in prayer if you're going to have the strength to wrestle through what's about to happen and the extreme nature of all the persecution of the cross. Well, then Jesus, he goes away. 
And he prays his prayer a second time. And then he comes back and the apostles, they're asleep again. And he asks them to wake up once more. And then we read in verse 44, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. I don't want to hear anybody ever dog on repetitive prayer, okay? Jesus is relentless here. Even though he's told no by God the Father, he returns time and again and the Father praying the same words, asking the same questions. And here's the second thing we learn from Jesus on how to pray like him here. We learn to pray yes only when we realize Jesus is inviting us to pray relentlessly. Even when you're told no, pray relentlessly. Sometimes, I don't know if this is true for you, but without even realizing it, um, I can treat prayer as if it's like this cosmic request form to an unconcerned boss who's not really concerned about his employees. Um, Like God doesn't really want to hear from me. Like he's not concerned about what I'm concerned about, but prayer is just his way to kind of keep us at bay. And I know that's, I know that's all messed up, but sometimes I can just find myself there. Is that Has that ever been you? You felt like your prayer request was on some stack of other prayer requests and at some point God will get to it when he's got time? Well, there couldn't be anything further from the truth. And and the error lies in this key perception of prayer and seeing it merely as something transactional. How many times do we come to God in prayer asking something from him? And that's the total of the prayers. Just wanting something from him, like God is some sort of cosmic Santa Claus or vending machine that if you come with the right change and punch in the right code, you'll finally get your butterfinger, right? That's my favorite anyway. But listen, prayer isn't transactional. Not at its heart. Prayer is relational. You see, prayer isn't primarily a place where we come trying to get more from God. Instead, prayer is first and foremost a place where we come asking more of God. And that's why this is so important that we can say denied prayer isn't wasted prayer. You didn't waste your time if God said no. Or if in the de facto, in the fact that nothing changes, and so you so receive a no by things continuing down the path, it wasn't wasted time. Denied prayer isn't wasted prayer because denied prayer, even there, cultivates intimacy with God. You see, God isn't some reluctant boss disdaining his employees and these request forms that we're filing. He's a loving father who's empathetic with his children, who wants their best, and he wants to hear from them. When Jesus prays here and when he teaches us to pray, we saw this earlier when we've been walking through Matthew, he doesn't leave the object of our prayer ambiguous. He doesn't say, just throw that out there and if the universe catches it or if Buddha catches it, no, no, no. He honestly and relentlessly prays to God, our Father, the creator God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who has so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, and then upon the ascension of Jesus, sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in those who exclusively follow Jesus. And when we relentlessly pray to God, our Father, as our Father, instead of writing God off because he told us no or he didn't give us what we wanted in that particular moment, it's in prayer that we remember who he is. Remember who he has said about himself and who he is. 
And so who we are. He is our Father. And if Jesus is our Lord and Savior, we are His children. You know, I was thinking about this as well. Like, how, is, how does denied prayer cultivate intimacy? And I, and I thought about when a child first or a teenager first goes to college. You know, and they, they get to college, it's freshman year, and, you know, the course load starts being a bit overwhelming. And it starts to heap on the homework, the homework, the homework, and then there's final exams. And to boot, you know, this girl hasn't made a whole lot of friends at college, and so finally she feels like she's met her breaking point. And so she calls home to Dad and says, Dad, I, I don't think I can do this. I want to come home. I want to come home. And Dad says, no, sweetie, I love you. You got to trust me, but you need to finish what you started. This is for your good. I love you. I'll always be here, but you're not coming home. Those are hard words to hear. Even excruciating hard words to hear, potentially in the moment. But still, you find the intimacy between this father and this daughter that's cultivated because they've shared this moment. She was transparent and honest and relentless with her dad. And her dad said no, because he loved her. And it fostered an even deeper relationship. See, prayer, even when we're told no, it cultivates intimacy with God. It's not wasted. So be relentless. God isn't trying to avoid your prayers. He's waiting for you to cry out. Well, when we turn to the garden here in Matthew 26, you know, Jesus, he comes back after praying this simple prayer for the third time. And he finds the apostles asleep again. But this time something's different. The whole disposition of Jesus is different. He's more resilient. No longer is Jesus downcast, right? But instead, he's telling the apostles, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And then when Judas comes, we find in verses 47 through 56, Judas comes and he betrays, he betrays Jesus with a kiss. And all of the soldiers are there to take Jesus. And one of the apostles pulls out a sword and slices off this guy's ear. Jesus is like, hey, 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 put your swords away. And what's Jesus say in response? This is absolutely amazing. He says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? He just heard no from God and has trust that God will answer His prayer. But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Something happened in Jesus. Fully God fully man. In the book of Hebrews, we see that Jesus in his incarnation and God become human, he learned obedience. And here in the mystery of the incarnation, Jesus went to the father over and over and over in prayer. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And by praying honestly and relentlessly, knowing his father heard him, then he was able to surrender completely. He was able to embrace no. And here's how we learn to say yes to God, even when God tells us no. Here's how we're able to embrace the no he gives. When you pray honestly and when you pray relentlessly to the Father, it is God himself who works in us to surrender completely. And isn't that so hopeful? You can't surrender on your own. It's got to be God working in you in the intimacy of pursuing Him. 
It's in those moments where you're relentless and you're honest and you're reaching out to our good Heavenly Father. Then surrender even becomes less of a command and more of an invitation. The very nature of it. Of course, you, you must still say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But prayer, honest and relentless prayer, is the place where our wills are wooed by God to surrender completely. Some of you know the story of my family growing up. And one way I saw this work itself out was on the night uh, when my parents chose to get a divorce. Um, I'd been praying for years that God would bring my dad back from wherever he was and that he would reconcile their marriage. Because just as a, as a son, you long, I mean, as a child, you long for your family to be whole. You long for that. You ache for it. There would be times I thought I saw my dad in the gas station or times I thought and hoped he'd pick me up at school and that never came. But something else happened. I remember walking in the door and my mom had tears running down her face and my dad had finally called and made the decision at that moment that the marriage was no longer worth fighting for. That reconciliation just wasn't worth it. And so they were going to file for divorce. I remember driving to an empty warehouse parking lot at like 9.30 at night, which at 16, I don't even know why my mom let me do that. But, um, and I got out of the car and I just remember being utterly honest with God with how angry I was. And just for like an hour, just praying out, asking why? Like, what are you doing? How could you do this? I prayed for you to reconcile their marriage, to bring them together. You're omnipotent. You're omnipotent. You're all powerful. You know it all. Why couldn't you bring this together? And he chose not to. But in all that praying, something happened. And really, I can't take credit for this. It's really mysterious to me. I've talked with others about it. But there was this overwhelming sense of surrender that just, it came upon me. It wasn't originated within me. Somehow I knew God had me. Somehow I knew God cared for me. And there have been these moments, because it's never just one moment in life, right? It's a, it's a series of different moments in our lives. It's just the same way it's not just one prayer, but it's Jesus' life of prayer that culminates in this climactic prayer in the garden. But it's in those moments where I go into prayer angry, honest, relentless, that God somehow woos me back to himself. He woos me to surrender to his will, knowing not that, that my parents' divorce was good, but somehow his good and perfect will is still good and perfect. And often, and this is weird, and honestly, I, can't, I don't even know how that, half the time I end up, end up in this position, but, but I end up in the doxology. I start off with, God, how could you? And then I end with, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Tears are just coming down my face. This is, it's happened to me in different moments in my life. I come back to this, this praise and I can't explain it. It's not like I planned it. It's not even like I wanted it. I wanted to be angry. But in prayer, relentless, honest prayer, God begins to woo us in ways that are indescribable. 
And it's once again, just as Jesus says here in our passage, it's in prayer that the Spirit works on the flesh that is so, so weak. And it's where we're weak. We have the best seat to see God's power and glory on display. You show me a man or woman who said yes to God when God said no to them, and I will show you someone who has dynamic influence for the gospel and the purposes of God in this world. And I don't mean they're famous, not by what we often mean by famous, but they're kind of like an everyday kind of famous, a kind of famous that each and every one of us can be, even though most people won't ever know their name. The kind of famous that Peter talks about in his letter in 1 Peter 3, where he says, hey, when this happens, not if, but when you suffer for righteousness sake, when you align yourself and surrender to Jesus and his ways and you suffer for it, And instead of drowning in despair, somehow you have this buoyancy, this hope. People are going to look on and say, that's not natural. There's something super, like supernatural about it. Where are you getting that from? Or like when Jesus is talking on the Sermon on the Mountain, we're surrounded by such great darkness. And as a community, we let our light shine, the light of the gospel, the light of Jesus. And people look on our good works and they glorify our God, our Father in heaven. In pain, in heartache, in frustration, in depression, in loss, in failure, we're utterly honest about it. We don't sugarcoat it, but we're relentless and coming, and he woos us back to himself. And you can reach out to God, and even though he says no, he trains us to say yes. Because at the heart of it all, God said yes first. I want you to imagine What if Jesus would have said no to God the Father in the garden? Imagine if he said, yeah, the cross is neat, but I think there's a better way. Imagine a world without the cross. A world without the bottomless pit of forgiveness. A world without a pathway of reconciliation to God. A world without the resurrection. A world without the church. A world without... This church, for many, has become a home away from home. But praise God, Jesus did say yes. That the Son of God always says yes to the Father, even when the Father said no to him. And what was the result? I think Philip Yancey says it best. He says, when Jesus prayed to the one who could save him from death, he did not get that salvation. He got instead the salvation of the world. And our first step in response to that, to what God has done in Christ, is yes, to embrace the finished work of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and to praise Him for that. And to sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. But the second step for every follower of Jesus is to hear our calling ring true. That as followers of Jesus, no one is excluded from picking up our cross and following Him. To say yes, even when God says no to us. And now I want you to imagine something else. I want you to imagine if the Apostle Paul would have never said yes to God. Even when God said no to removing the thorn in his flesh. I want you to imagine if St. Augustine had never said yes to God. I want you to imagine if Martin Luther when he nailed the 95 Theses combating the heresy of the Catholic Church, 
would have never said yes. I want you to imagine William Wilberforce who brought about the abolition of slavery in England at a critical time that even had impacts on the United States if he would have never said yes. Imagine Martin Luther King Jr. in a world full of no's had never said yes for human dignity and human rights where they would be without his influence. What if Mother Teresa would have never said yes, that thousands upon thousands of forgotten individuals who would have never known her warm embrace and her strong stance and standing for the dignity of even the unborn? Imagine Johnny Erickson Tata, who was paralyzed, whom God never answered her prayer to be healed this side of heaven, and yet created countless works of beautiful art and glorified God in the midst of the no. Imagine if Billy Graham would have never said yes. Imagine if Wesley Hill would have found his identity in his sexual orientation rather than Jesus or Rosaria Butterfield. Imagine how much darker the world would be without them. Without them saying yes. Without them being the hands and feet that Jesus calls us to be. And what about you? Where has God told you no? Are you willing to say yes even when God tells you no? Because Jesus is calling each and every one of us always say yes to God even when God says no to you. And you'll never be able to say yes just by trying harder, okay? This isn't like a grit your teeth kind of moment. Instead, it's training your heart better. The first step to live the life that we were designed to live, the way that it's even possible is first embracing Jesus' finished work on the cross on your behalf. But then it's living a life of honest and relentless prayer, of getting down on your knees, even getting down on your face, in the midst of the no's in life, and saying yes, yes, and allowing God to woo you back to himself, to surrender, to surrender it all. This is how we say yes, even when we experience no from God. And oh, imagine what he can do through you in the next year, the next decade, the rest of your life, the stories that might be written of a little campus in downtown Kansas City. However long the Lord may tarry and people look back on the history of the church, what might be written of you if you say yes, even when God says no? Well, at this time, I want us to pray and I want us to practice saying yes together. And to do that, we're going to pray the prayer that Jesus has taught us to pray that becomes the paradigm for every prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Would you join me in praying? Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.